Would you turn again, please, to Luke chapter 20? Luke's Gospel chapter 20. And if you don't have a Bible, well, you might want to raise your hand, because I'm sure that Anthony could pass you one, because there's plenty there. So don't be embarrassed. If you haven't got a Bible and you'd like to borrow one, just put your hand up, because it really will help you to have Luke's Gospel chapter 20 open in front of you. Luke chapter 20. As you've heard, there's page numbers on the yellow sheets. So I wonder what you think of the word religion. When you hear the word religion, does it sound attractive to you? Or does it sound unattractive? What do you think of religion? Some Christians say Christianity isn't a religion. I think that's rather unhelpful because by most uses of the word, yes, Christianity is a religion. But I can understand people wanting to distance Christianity from religion because a lot of religion is... Well, it can be dead and detached from normal life and proud and hypocritical. Yes, I can understand people wanting to distance themselves from that. Religion can have so much that's corrupt about it. Well, if we're honest, churches can have so much that's corrupt about them. And the reason is pretty straightforward. Us humans have so much that's corrupt about us. And here... In Luke chapter 19, verse 45, right the way through to the end of chapter 21, you have Jesus clashing with corrupt religion. That's what's going on across that long section from chapter 19, verse 45 to the end of chapter 21. Jesus is clashing with corrupt religion. I'll try to persuade you that's what's going on, so you don't have to just take my word for it. Look at the first verse in that section. Chapter 19, verse 45, starts a new section. Where is Jesus? In chapter 19, verse 45, he's in the temple. The section ends with the last verses of chapter 21. If you look at the last two verses of chapter 21, where is Jesus? He's in the temple. And in between you get repeated reminders, this is all based around the temple. So for example, chapter 20 verse 1, he's teaching in the temple. Chapter 21 verse 5, his disciples are saying to him, look at the temple. And they start a conversation about the temple. Repeatedly we're told this is all happening around the temple. Now the temple was the centre of Jewish religion. It was supposed to be the place to meet God. But it had corrupted. Human corruption had got in and spoiled it. And here Jesus clashes with that. In chapter 20 especially, you have repeated clashes between Jesus and the people who represent or govern the temple. Chapter 20 is really just a list of different clashes between Jesus and the temple authorities. And we're going to see how that applies to us. But first we need to remember how it fits into Luke's Gospel. Do you remember what Luke's Gospel is all about? Well, its theme is given back in chapter 19, verse 10. The theme of Luke's Gospel is, The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. It's all about Jesus coming for lost people. 
And Luke has repeatedly shown us Jesus welcoming and loving and forgiving and caring for people who knew they were lost. There was a lot wrong with them. But Luke has also repeatedly shown us pairs of people. It's interesting to read through Luke's Gospel and spot the pairs. He's repeatedly shown us pairs where one knows he's lost and wrong and needs help. And the other says, no, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm not lost. And in Luke so far, the emphasis has been on the first one in those pairs. Jesus welcoming the ones who see their lost. Now the emphasis is starting to shift to Jesus clashing with the second type. Those who say, no, I'm fine actually. So as we go through Luke chapter 20, which we're going to do now, the question you need to be asking yourself is, which of those types are you? Are you someone who sees, there's a lot about me that I need Jesus to deal with. I need him to clear out of my life. Or are you someone who doesn't want to hear that and you react against being told there's anything wrong with you? No, I'm fine actually. I'll carry on my own way. As we go through this chapter, always be asking yourself, which type are you? Well, I've said, here's Jesus clearing out religion that's corrupt. How is he doing so? We're going to go through that now. And I have to admit, it's going to be a bit of a whistle-stop tour. So first of all, we have Jesus clearing out religion that is self-serving. This is chapter 19, verse 45, right the way through to chapter 20, verse 19. Jesus clearing out religion that is self-serving. If we went into the temple back then, we might be rather surprised because we'd find quite a noisy place. We'd hear sheep bleating and pigeons cooing and money rattling. What's all this noise? Well, the the temple had been turned into a marketplace. Of course, you needed sheep and pigeons and some money for the temple sacrifices and gifts. But these things had moved from just being a necessity for you as you worship God to being what it was all about. These things had taken over. The temple had been turned into a marketplace. People were making money out of these things. And it had all got self-serving instead of God-serving. That's what Jesus is showing up in verse 46. 19 verse 46, where he says... This is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. It's supposed to be focused upwards to God. You've made it focused inwards to yourself. And Jesus won't stand for that. And so we read, he drives out the market traders. He gets rid of them from the temple. It's easy to read that, but have a think about the practicalities of that. How would you get on on a Saturday morning if you decided Loughborough Town Centre was too crowded? Let's clear out the market traders. You wouldn't stand a chance, would you? I don't know how Jesus did it. He clearly wasn't the timid wimp he's often portrayed as. He was a man of some personality. And he manages somehow to drive them out. Now, of course, this annoys the temple leaders. They are in charge around here, not Jesus, and they're making some good money. 
And so they want to kill him, but they can't. Verse 48, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Jesus wins. They try questioning him. Who are you to take charge of the temple? What's your authority for all of this? But he just questions them back and they can't answer him. Again, Jesus wins. That's verses 1 to 8. He even then tells them a story that shows up their corruption and infuriates them more. That's verses 9 to 18. But they can't stop him. Verse 19, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he'd spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Jesus wins. Well, that's back then. Let's have a think about us. I've never seen pigeons being sold in a church or sheep or money being changed by bankers in a church. I don't know. I doubt any of you have either. This story seems a mile, a million miles away from us. But we can so easily, like them, be self-serving in our religion. Do you know who probably preaches to more people than any other each Sunday? Who in the world today probably preaches to more people than any other? It's probably a man called Joel Osteen. He's got a church in America with 43,000 attending it. His sermons go out, broadcast to, they reckon, 10 million listeners in the USA, plus people in 100 other other countries. And so he's speaking to an awful lot of people. What is his message? Well, you can tell what his message is like if you look at the titles of the books he's written. His best known is called Your Best Life Now. He's also written It's Your Time. Another one is the power of I am. And it doesn't mean God's name, I am. It means, tell yourself, I am successful. I am talented. I am strong. I don't know how people read such drivel. Uh, Another one is you can, you will. There's a whole load more, but you get the idea, I hope. It's all about getting from God the life you want. Now, I doubt many people here are listening to Joel Austin on the internet. I hope you're not. It's rubbish. But we can easily see God as the way to get life to go according to our plan. If we obey God, if we read the Bible regularly, if we come to church frequently, God ought to give us a comfortable life. We're not demanding a private jet like those flashy preachers do. But shouldn't we at least have a comfortable house and not get chronic illness? It's a self-serving religion. If if I'm following God, surely I ought to at least have my life go somewhere down the line of my plans. We haven't turned the church into a market. There's no selling sheep here Sunday by Sunday. But have we turned it into, how do I feel about church today? Instead of, was God honoured today? Do I enjoy the music? Instead of, is Jesus praised? What did I get from it? Instead of, is the saviour being made known? We can feel a million miles from them, but still have a self-serving religion. And here we find Jesus clears out such religion. 
Next we find, secondly, Jesus clearing out religion that wants political power. This is verse 20 to 26. Now, I'm not going to go through that at all because we haven't got time. I've got to skip something. Over lunch, maybe you can talk to each other about what Jesus means here when he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. Very interesting phrase. But we haven't got time to go over it. I've just mentioned it so you can see the pattern. It's Jesus again clashing and Jesus again wins. They want to trap him, but, verse 26, they were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. Very significant. They are silenced by Jesus. But let's move on to a third way. He's clashing with corrupt religion. Jesus is clearing out religion that isn't eternally minded. Here I'm going to try to summarise a big section, verse 27 to 40. Now a different group tries to trap Jesus. Before we'd had the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they were a bit like the fundamentalists of the day. They were a really keen, strict religious people. The next group were the the religious liberals of the day. Yes, they were religious, but we don't believe all that supernatural stuff. We want a religion that, that is about how we behave here and now. Some benefit here and now. We don't believe all that stuff about life after death. No, better to focus on life now. They didn't believe in the resurrection that God can raise and will raise the dead. The way to remember their name is this. They didn't believe in life after death. That is why they were sad, you see. I know that's a terrible pun, but it will probably work because it will probably mean you'll remember their name. You'll remember the terrible pun. They didn't believe in life after death. They're called the Sadducees. And they come to Jesus with a ridiculous story about a woman who married a man, then he died. So she married his brother, then he died, and she ends up marrying seven brothers. You would have thought two brothers would make the point. And the point was, they're saying, look, you can't really believe in life after death, because we can't imagine it. We can't, from our life now, see how a life to come could work, because they're judging it by their life now. They're saying... We look at life now, you tell us there's a life after death. No, I can't see how the two can correlate. Now, I'm not going to go through the details here because I'm trying to cover the whole chapter. But Jesus' reply basically says to them, you've gone wrong because you're judging things by your experience now. You can't expect life after death to be exactly like life now. You can't decide whether it's believable on the basis of your limited experience. How foolish is that? Instead, you need to take seriously the words of the Bible. And so he directs them to the Bible. That's what he's doing in verse 37. In fact, in the other Gospels he says, you've really gone wrong because you haven't taken seriously the Scriptures. So he takes them to part of the Bible written hundreds of years after a man called Abraham, where God said, I am the God of Abraham. Even though Abraham had died. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. He says, I am the God of Abraham. Even though Abraham had died. God says, I am his God. 
because he's still alive. Jesus says, you haven't taken seriously the depth there is in Scripture and exactly what those words mean. Jesus is saying, take seriously the words of the Bible instead of going by your experiences, as if you can judge everything by your limited experiences. And again, Jesus wins. Verse 40. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. They don't dare because he's got the answer and he's silencing them all. Now, I hope you're not a Sadducee. I hope you believe God will raise the dead. But it's very easy to say we believe it and live as if we don't. Imagine a group of people in an airport. They're waiting to go on holiday. They're in the departure lounge. There are comfortable chairs to sit in. There is food to eat. There's even Wi-Fi for their phones and their tablets. And there they are, comfortable in the departure lounge, and eventually on the screen it flashes up. Their flight is ready. And they're annoyed. Our flight is ready. Bother. We're quite happy here in the departure lounge. We don't want that flight yet. We're settled down. Well, surely not. You don't do that, do you? Don't you think the holiday will be better than the airport? Well, if Jesus returns this week and raises the dead, will it be an annoyance that disrupts your plans? Or will it be something welcome? Are you settled too comfortably here? And the thought of Jesus coming back, well, I've got loads of things I want to do. Or is it actually, that would be the culmination of, the pinnacle of what I'm aiming for? Do you give any thought to him coming back? People in an airport, don't they keep checking those screens? When's our flight coming? Oh, come on, the time's ticking too slowly. Check the screen again. I'm looking forward to that holiday. Well, are you looking forward to being with Jesus? Do you give that any thought? Do you pray for it? Or does it not really figure in your thoughts from day to day? You're too settled down in the airport. Is your religion like the Sadducees? It's all about here and now. Or are you looking forward? You really do believe there's better to come. Jesus clears out religion that isn't eternally minded. Now, the next clash gets us to the crucial issue. Clearing out religion that doesn't acknowledge him. This is verses 41 to 44. Jesus clears out religion that doesn't acknowledge him. The religious people back then, they were hoping for the Messiah, God's promised king, also called the Christ. But they got wrong who he is. They say he's David's son. In other words, he's going to restore the royal family of Israel. At last, they think, when he comes, we'll get a king who'll make Israel great again. I wonder if they had little red caps. Make Israel great again. That's what the Messiah will do. Jesus says to them, hang on, have you read what David himself said about the Messiah? And so he quotes David. If you look at verse 42, Jesus is quoting David about the Messiah. Jesus says, hang on, haven't you read, David said, the Lord, that is God, said to my Lord. David calls the Messiah my Lord. Now, how many fathers call their sons my Lord? 
A king doesn't call his son my lord because the son won't become lord until he's dead. What's going on here? Now, Jesus is not denying that the Messiah is David's son. He's saying, how can he be David's son and David's lord? Because he is far greater than you've realised. He's David's son because he's man, and he's David's lord because he's God. So he hasn't come to fit your agenda, make Israel great again. He's come so that you should fit God's agenda. And no one answers Jesus' question. Verse 44, they just go silent. The other Gospels tell us they couldn't answer. Jesus wins again. Now Jesus is clearing out religion that doesn't acknowledge him, that wants a Messiah that will just fit their agenda. And it's possible to be keen on Christian things, to actually like coming to church, to think people ought to follow Christian morals, to believe there's a creator who made us in his image. And what he says in the Bible makes sense for life, but not have much interest in Jesus. It's possible to like a lot about Christianity, but not have much interest in Jesus. However much you think, if only people followed the Bible, our society would be much better. What we need is a good dose of Christian morals. Coming to church makes me feel better. However much you think that, if you're not concerned to hear about Jesus, if you've got no interest in wondering about the one who's David's son and David's Lord, if it doesn't actually excite you and lift your spirits to praise the one who's at the right hand of God. There's something wrong. Whatever else you might like about Christianity and church, there's something wrong. You're probably wanting a Jesus to fit your agenda. And Jesus clears out religion that's like that because he's much more than that. Here's the last one. Sorry, it's been a whistle-stop tour, uh, but I wanted you to see how this chapter all fits together. The last one is clearing out religion that's a proud show. Let's actually read these verses. I'll read to you verse 45 onwards. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make, healthy, make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Can you imagine being there? The teachers of the law are actually present. Verse 39 tells us the teachers of the law are actually present. All the people are listening and Jesus singles out those teachers of the law and denounces them by name as proud hypocrites. He says, you see those people over there? And look at them in their flowing robes. They look so good and they want you to think they're so good. But it's all a show. Inside they're rotten. Oh, it must have been really cringy. He's going for a head-on collision with them. And he'll win, verse 47, he says, these people, uh, they may look so good now, but they're going to get the most severe punishment. 
Because God's severest punishment is not for the drug dealers, not for the people who mug others. It will be for the religious people where it's all a proud show, covering up a rotten inside, all about impressing others. Now, sadly, this didn't die out with the teachers of the law 2,000 years ago. How many sermons have been preached with the main motive being, is my preaching impressing others? How many prayers have been prayed at prayer meetings with the main motive being, what do other people think of me? How many jobs are done with the aim of other people noticing and thinking I'm good? How many comments are dropped in with the aim of sounding good or looking clever? Jesus is maybe at his most brutal in verse 45 to 47. He doesn't hold back as he clears out religion that is a proud show. Well, that's been a whistle-stop tour of 19 verse 45 to the end of chapter 20, and it's all been negative, hasn't it? It's all been rather unrelentingly negative. Is Jesus just an expert on what's wrong with everyone? Do you know what the Twitter mob and cancel culture are? The Twitter mob and cancel culture. If someone in public life has ever said something wrong, made a politically incorrect statement, shown attitudes that are thought of as suspect, oh, they'll be denounced on Twitter. That's the Twitter mob. And they'll get you banned and pushed out of public life. That's the cancel culture bit. We live in a society that's very good at showing up what's wrong or what they think is wrong with everyone. Is that Jesus? No, not at all. Chapter 20 has sounded so negative, but Jesus is far from just an expert on what's wrong with everyone. To see that, think back to what I said at the start. Do you remember Luke shows us two types of people? There are two types of people in this gospel. There are two types of people in this world. There are two types of people in this room. What are those two types? Are they the people who've got the sins in chapter 20 and the people who haven't got those sins? No. The two types are those who see something of themselves in this chapter. They see, oh yeah, I've still got some self-serving in me. Yes, I can see some proud show in me. I can see some wrong attitude to Jesus in me. And they say, Jesus, I see it. Please clear it out of me. I need you. The other type also has some proud show or some self-serving or some wrong attitude to Jesus but says, no, I don't want to hear that. No, that's not me. No, you've got it wrong. I'll just carry on. In chapter 20, Jesus is clashing with that second group. But we must remember in the previous chapters, he's been welcoming the first group. Not people who are all sorted out and they've completely got rid of pride. And they are completely self-serving. And they're completely focused on eternity. No, they're not. They're people who are lost. But they say, Jesus, I am lost. I need you. Please clear that stuff out of me. And Jesus welcomes them then. And he still welcomes such today. And he will welcome you if you're one of them, if you turn to him. But how can he welcome them? How can he welcome such people? 
Well, we also have to look on to the next chapters. And in the next chapters, you find Jesus putting himself in the hand of those religious corrupt people. He puts himself in their hands. Although he's proved he can silence them. This time, they are going to do the talking. And they clamour and they talk and they accuse and they shout, crucify him, crucify him. And this time, Jesus is silent. Even though in chapter 20, he's shown he can silence them. He's shown he can win. This time, he'll let them look like they've won. And they kill him. But they haven't won. Because he's doing it, because he loves us. And he's doing it so we can have our sin cleared out. And so we can be filled with something much better. We can have cleared out our self-serving and be filled with self-giving. We can have cleared out our focused on here and now and be filled with eternal mindedness. We can have cleared out our pride and be filled with humility. We can be cleared out our, I want Jesus to sort out, to, to make my life go my way and be filled with love for Jesus as he is. So which type of person are you? Jesus, there's such a lot I need clearing out of my life. Please do it. Or, no, that's not me, I'm fine. Jesus clashes with sin and we've seen again and again and again he wins. Is that good news to you or bad news? Will you welcome Jesus clearing out your sin now or will you one day have Jesus clearing you out of his world forever? Let's pray about that now.